That's who we are. The same time. That's right. Yeah. Here we are uh, doing history and dogma. I am Charles Hughes Huff, and with me is Jordan Daniel Wood. Hello, Jordan. Hey, Charles. Great to see you. Great to be here at the start of an endeavor. The endeavor has begun. <laughs> I am really happy to be starting a podcast with you, Jordan, because I've enjoyed uh, everything we've done together, um, including a podcast before and many conversations. And uh, I feel honored to be able to talk about theology and history with you. Well, history and dogma, both. We're going to lean into dogma. That's right. We're (laughs) going to lean into it. We're going to have to talk about that a little bit. So uh, Jordan and I met originally sort of because um, we both held the same job at an all-girls Catholic high school called Incarnate Word Academy. Shout out to Incarnate Word. Apparently, the girls that I had taught, they said when they met Jordan, you would be friends with Hughes Huff. And they were right. So, words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, they were. Uh, I surprised the senior girls. It was an introduction to philosophy course. I surprised them by inviting you to guest lecture. It was, it was the year of COVID, right? 2020 to 21. Mm-hmm. So, you zoomed in, and I think you gave a lecture. What was it on, Charles? Was it. It was Hume. It yeah, was Hume. David, it was yeah. Like, it was like Thomas Hobbes or Hume. Or like, and it was funny because like you, you gave like a legitimate lecture. I think you were in college, like you, you know, you had you'd been a college professor, seminary, or or Saint, you know, you were you were sort of teaching college level. So when you zoomed in, I mean, I don't know if you did that always with your high school students, but my goodness, it was like, wow, this is real, this is real deal stuff, and they just they didn't know what to do. <laughs> Well, I, I think I was uh, maybe slightly intimidated of you and the, your your greater comprehensive comprehension of philosophy, and I was like, I got to make sure this is squared away. You know, like, <laughs> what, what, what you didn't realize was that I frequently practice what I called "forget it Fridays," oh. <laughs> where I would walk in, or I would walk in if philosophy fell on a Friday, and I would say. All right, ladies, are we doing philosophy? Or are we forgetting it? And then I would always choose forget it and just like throw the book across. <laughs> so the bar was very low. You, you really cleared it. So, yeah, uh, Jordan, we, we were calling the podcast History and Dogma, an unlikely pairing. And of course, we did not come up with this title, did we? No, we did not. All right. So, it, like, yeah. Blondell. It is Blondell. Blondell's the Maurice guy. Blondell, the. Now, we should say up front, right, this isn't a podcast about Maurice Blondell. Neither of us is a an expert or a scholar of Maurice Blondell. And I actually think that's, that's actually crucial because both of us are adult converts to, to, to Catholicism. Uh, both of us come from a Protestant, I think, very Bible-centered uh, background. And you are, a, you are an expert in the... Um, Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures. Mm -hmm. And I come from, I I did a little bit of that early on, but I'm not an expert in it. And instead, I'm a historical theologian of the column, right? So we're coming from different uh, disciplines, though we have similar biographical uh, histories. But we both have sort of independently, I think, or I think around the same time, if I, if I don't, if I recall correctly, sort of found Blondell as a useful, a really useful um, way into navigating what we might call the kind of landscape of Catholic thought and into, you know, 
these different oppositions and binaries that come up. Just kind of like, what does it mean to think Catholicly, Christianly Catholicly, but in a way that doesn't fall into sort of the perennial and, you know, cliched oppositions that fill the discourse online or in all these different venues, right and left, and sort of the same old slogans. And and I think if, if Blondell is anything, he's not a slogan thrower. He, he's not just going to rest content with abstractions and empty sort of catchphrases. Yeah. yeah. And that's invigorating because if I can speak, if I can say this and you, you know, you, you chime in and let me know if you think this is a fair, I don't, I think both of us had gone through, had, had sort of certain expectations when we were becoming Catholic Yeah, from our respective backgrounds and then have been variously disenchanted at certain times by the kinds of things we were running into. I don't, I don't know if you want to say more about that and we'll get to Blondell himself in a little bit, but yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's right. There's a, uh, for me, it was um, a, Plunging into uh, now, Blundell talks about in history and dogma just extrins. We'll define these things later. Sort of extrinsicism, which is a kind of dogmaticism, uh, a yeah. dogmatic way of treating history, and then historicism, which sort of is a reductionistic way of understanding history. And I had come uh, to Catholicism with a sort of reenchantment for faith and spiritual life and sort of a humbling before God. And and it was an excitement, too, about how in Catholicism that re-enchantment was not um, something that asked you to not be intellectual, but rather was infused with the intellectual, mm-hmm. you know, that you wouldn't have to hold these two things separately with a sort of chasm between them. That was very appealing to me. So yeah, I would say we have also then experienced a disenchantment with that idea from time to time. <laughs> you know, not that, that that's not true. Uh, I think it is, and and uh, but there is a lot of slogan, a lot of ideology, and a lot of what I encounter. I think for both of us, we encounter it with a bit of surprise because it's it's like a a new form uh, an excited form of the same kind of american christianity that we grew up in which was hostile to catholicism and now we're finding those same tendencies within catholicism right and other you know kinds of things too and so it's really refreshing to go back and read blondell and realize like wow he's he was dealing with this exact stuff that's it's sort of uncanny how the debates that he's dealing with in his books in the early 20th century are like completely relevant 100 100, 100 years later the lessons have not really been learned um, right yeah. yeah no and that's that's something i i want to i want to say up front uh, a little bit more at least from my own personal by like my own biography what i've what part of the disenchantment that i've experienced uh in becoming catholic and you know and look and some of some of it is probably just inherent and natural right like grass is greener on the other side sort of mentality you know mm-hmm. i'm reading fides et ratio which is just a beautiful it's a gorgeous document it's you know i, I remember sit, i know i remember exactly where i was when i first read it i was so struck around sections like 75 73 to 75 where because i felt like i was like wow this is this is the this is the leader of the largest religious body on the face of the earth mm-hmm, mm-hmm. seemingly at least the the tone i got was begging humanity to have faith in reason yeah 
yeah. which was <laughs> such a which was such a clash with and a dissonance with what I had been raised in, you know, the sort of anti, uh, kind of an anti-intellectualist disposition, a kind of watch out if you go to higher, you know, higher education, like watch out, guard your faith. It's very dangerous. It's like a, it's like, it's, it's a place, you know, totally bereft of divine presence. Uh, you know, what I th- the, the, the place I went to my undergrad, like, um, they sort of, one of the main founders of that small institution was, was someone who had intentionally not gotten like graduate degrees and like almost was like proud of it and they talked about it like as sort of a legend so to read in fides et ratio like later in my life that kind of thing and, and i had great professors as well i mean because i went from like a bible college background straight to you know and I, I was jesuit educated both on the master's and the phd level so i had so there's also that i'm reading you know they're assigning this great stuff like very first semester uh, in grad school, I'm reading in one class. I was reading like Newman. I was reading like Lonergan, like a little bit of Blondell, like Gadamer, like all this stuff. And I'm just like, not that, not that all those people are all, all of them are Catholics, or we only read Catholics, but it was just the kind of what was demonstrated was like the culture, and it was the mentality of like, yes, let's engage this stuff, and that captivated me. Mm-hmm. What really captivated me wasn't like I was thinking Catholic, like Catholicos. Yeah, you know, like 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 the real the Greek the Greek term that's like universal, which is to say fearlessly capacious, yeah, and open to literally the you you know every everything every time everywhere. Like I fundamentally have always believed that if the truth, I, I've always thought that that a truth that needed to be defended by X something any or anything external to itself was a weak and pathetic truth. Mm-hmm. And and specifically a weak and pathetic God. Mm-hmm. If if your if the triumph of your message simply depends on whether or not I am the span of my lifetime in 70, 80 years, if if that a figure out enough to to be able to adequately convince, you know, other people of the truth, like what what is this sort of process of what is this uh, potency that you're supposed to have in your own self-disclosure? Yeah. So all that to, yeah, I could go on and on about that. But the, the main point for me is so I, I I encounter this and I'm smitten by it. Like this is this is what and, and so like I said, there's a grass is greener aspect to it. But part of why what I think you and I have uh, kind of converged on and what what we have in common is even after the disenchantment, which I'll return to in a moment, we still we still believe that's there. Oh right? yeah, for sure. <laughs> we, yeah. St- we, st- we still believe, like, that's why I'm still doing this. That's why I'm still, you know, I, this is why I do it in my free time. I don't have much free time. I'm a stay-at-home dad of four kids. and and But like, I still do this. I'm like huddled up in my basement, like some kind of, I don't know, uh, somebody in a bunker somewhere. But, but it's because I believe in it still, and I still see it. And I know people, and there are exemplars and so forth. And, and Blondell is an exemplar of the past that you and I happen to sort of convert verged upon as well in the same time i just want to say this last piece the part of part of the disenchantment then kind of going from that high or sort of this aspiration or this vision or whatever you want to call it this kind of spark of faith was encountering some of the very dynamics that i had grown up in that had led to very destructive paths for 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 even some good friends Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of mine Uh, but encountering them just now simply in catholic dress and form and i couldn't believe that i mean it was 
So I had friends that fall, fell into all of the, of the following categories, I, you know, because this is like an errantist, like there's everything in the Bible is, is stated. It's historically accurate. It's like an objective record of exactly everything God has said and how it's played out without any error of any kind. Well, as you well, well know, perhaps better than most, given your expertise, it's like that's not going to hold up. Yeah. That's not, it's not going to hold up. I mean, you know, there's different questions and there's debates and so on, but like, but you, you know, I won't necessarily get into examples of that because we'll have future episodes where we get into like more details on this stuff. But let's just say once questions were raised and some very difficult or, or overly simplistic answers were given, and then those were destroyed. I mean, my friends eventually, they kind of fell into like two or three paths. One was just, was just to uh, shut off the mind. No more questions. This is this is leading down a slippery slope. I mean, I had I had friends that were like told this by pretty influential figures in their life. Like, you need to stop. You need to stop this. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. did. And and, it, you know, it broke relationships and stuff. And it was just kind of like, a, no, we're drawing the line like no more of this. Yep. So that's one way. But then the other way was, was, you know, the opposite, which was just a total, complete loss of faith because I had been, you know, for these people, it's like, look, I had been fundamentally duped. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had been told lies uh, or, or neglectful, might say neglectful pedagogy uh, or sort of where the lack of curiosity uh, wasn't a virtue, but was in fact a kind of a, a vice of neglect or omission. And that destroyed it for them. So they they just more or less lost their faith entirely. Um, and then I think the third category would be where people like me and a few of my other friends that were like, and this is the heart of it. Surely there's more to this, A. Eh? Surely there's more to Christianity than what I know. And surely if the Christian faith is true, it can handle whatever is more. I love that. I love that. And and that um, includes like a, a, a real grappling with history and contingency in, in a way that Blondell is going to lead us down as we turn to him. But Yes, I love that you related this this whole thing to inerrancy because he's going to call inerrancy. He's going to refer to this kind of mindset as extrinsicism, where you're trying to lift out of uh, history or the record of history or the scripture, and it's uh, working with history a series of facts that are incontrovertible. They must be true. And so what the scripture is reduced to in this case is just a record of facts and that we must assent to. And if we deny any point of the, you know, this being record of fact, then we're, we're no longer believing the Bible. And if we would just assent to it, then we would know everything. Mm-hmm. And the problem here isn't just that on a historical level where we, you know, because then when we attack this, it's always at this like, well, but actually some of those things aren't facts. And so then we're in this like slippery thing. But the real problem is just this, that's not the way to think about this at all, right? Uh, w- whether something is probably fairly historically accurate in the scripture, there are many of those kinds of cases, right? Right. Or whether... There may be a different thing going on with it, uh, and yeah. we're not dealing with that. That's a secondary question. The primary question is, is this the kind of thing we should be even wanting from history, from Scripture, from God? Is there some more that should be we should be looking for? And that's what Blondell is kind of talking about. And that's, and that's what I think we both, in our graduate work, both of us have been very fascinated by history and its contingencies. It's either... The, the sort of house of cards, the very brittle, frail house of cards that inerrancy is, and the sort of like, we're going to rule out the 
personhood of historical actors, and we're going to rule out the spirit of God within the facts of history of like a purely secularist kind of historiography, which may sound reductionist, but this is Blondell's argument. Uh, neither of us are satisfied with those options, right? right? So we have to keep pressing on uh, whether or not we've found all the answers, but we're still on the hunt, right? That's a- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We're still on the hunt. And that's, you know, this is, you should, I should say something real quick about, so Blondell, we're, History of Dogma is uh, written as a kind of, it's the, the form is a letter. It's written in 1904. So like you said, right, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's over a century ago. And it's, um, you know, it's in the kind of heat of the so-called modernist controversy. But um, he had already written his kind of the, his major work is sort of what was his initial dissertation called Act. So he's got this whole philosophy of action. Uh, we won't try to, you know, countenance that right now. But the point is, w- one of the major upshots of that work is that so many of these kind of recalcitrant oppositions that do arise in, say, uh, our ideas or or maybe you might say the uh, dueling abstractions mm-hmm. are, are both generated but also in- irresolvable except in light of action, which is always more determinate than any idea or abstraction about the action. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And therefore, right, I mean, his, his, his main thing is that, you know, action sort of always carries within it its own uh, detectable insufficiency as such. Yeah. Right. As just my, like, like I have mastery and control over my intention, my choice and my action. It doesn't refer to anything external to me or internal to me apart from that very determinate intention. He's going to argue against that based on his philosophy of the dynamics of action. So, so that it's always, in fact, all of our rational intentionality and action are also always, as it were, maybe as he would say, transcendentally, you know, sort of oriented to to God or in theology speaks as sort of the supernatural. But I think what's important about that and what really comes over in history and dogma is and and this here, you know, he's indebted to a lot of currents in the 19th century philosophy that we may at some point get to, but where what do you what do you say? Like the very idea that I am self-sufficient in that way is itself an abstraction rather than corresponding, it doesn't correspond to my actual life and the dynamics of my real action. Absolutely. And I think what he's doing when he turns to history and dogma, then he has that kind of philosophical heft and background there, that groundwork, that spade work kind of already done. And when he turns to this question, it's occasioned by Alfred Loisy's book. Uh, what is it? The event, uh, the gospel in the church or something like that, which is a very, it's a kind of prototypical exemplar of you know, modern historical criticism. It's got a lot of the theses, some of which are still, you know, I think pretty current even today, uh, you know, Jesus, in the early church, like expected the imminent end of the world, that didn't happen. There was this kind of fundamental delusion and so forth. So, so right, you've got that work over there, and then the kind of super hardcore reaction by the what he's calling the extrinsicists, right? The ahistorical dogmatists, who who what me what it means to say they're extrinsicists is like you were saying, is that the truth of revelation, which is immutable and unchanging, is 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 arbitrarily related to anything that actually happens in history at best. In fact, at one point he calls it a docetism yeah mm-hmm. it's just a revelation sort of only seems to appear in history but it never actually takes flesh and i think that's crucial by the way of course yeah uh, he uses our incarnation language all throughout the text but the point is that that's the kind of right he's in that context and he's looking at the extrinsicists yep mo- many of whom uh, you know in his day were various forms of neotomists or manualists as they're called who basically are just like look we know 
I mean, he has that whole wonderful paragraph at the start of the, of the text where he's like kind of taking on their voice, right? And he's like, we know the answers. We already know the truth. Why verify the details? Why get into the mess of history? Why get into all the different languages and like, you know, all this stuff? Like, who cares about all that? That's all sort of literally extrinsic. It's, it's arbitrary. It's superfluous. Mm-hmm. We already know the truth. We don't need to like verify it or like figure or add anything really like uh, determinative to it. So you got them on the one side, but then you got what he's called historicist on the other side, like, like, like Loisiel. I don't think he ever names him, but it's very, very clear. He's alluding to him where, where, what they're saying, you were saying, right. We, we only have access to bare facts and anything else is just pure guesswork and total, you know, speculation and it's groundless and maybe even fanatical. So you're, you're caught between these two. And I think, and like you're saying, these are the dynamics that still play themselves out to this very day in so many different, right? But what Blondell is saying, what I think is so useful is that both of them are abstractions because both of them are ideas that imagine themselves self-sufficient. Yes, 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 yes. They're abstractions. They don't allow the full personhood in his terms, right, of, of every actor in those historical circumstances to have its full possibility or its full mystery, you know, its full unaccountability and uh, stops imagining or even attempting to imagine the full contingency that extrinsicism denies and that historicism depends on, but they, they neither one of them like fully explores it. Yeah. And I also like that where, where he's the extremists don't care about history, but then they also do, right? So some of them look like neo-Thomists who really are like may actually feel like afraid of history. Yeah. But then also he talks about the uh, people who take the historical facts, abstract them like some sort of historical fact that proves as like a flag on a castle of a miracle. Like, okay, here we have a miracle. Here's a here's a fact that's a miracle. We're going to dogmatically put that flag on the castle, <laughs> and that's thank you, history. We have you have done for us what you can do, and that that's where I see this kind of inerrancy thing coming in too. Where it's like inerrantists and biblicists who really want to reduce the Bible to a series of uh, verified facts are doing a similar kind. It's just the other side of the same coin of historicism, right? They're both, yeah. they're both kind of fighting the same. And this is like, I've seen this too with friends who, who flip from one side to the other so rapidly. Oh, like, okay, I'm convinced that the enormous numbers of people as described in Exodus and numbers and Joshua's coming into the promised land likely did not, you know, that, that there weren't that many people living in the entire region, you know, for like hundreds of years. <laughs> so, okay, the Bible is a lie. I'm done. Right. Because it's reducing it to that. Is it fact or not? And do I believe it or not? And sometimes that that just tips over where the fact sort of overrules the belief and then suddenly we're out to sea. And I think Blondell saw both of those kinds of reactions as really missing the entire point. Yeah, I remember reading, uh, I was made to read, this tells you a little bit of something about our <laughs> my, my background, but um, I was made to read Ken Ham's book called <laughs> Why Won't They Listen? when i was was in college of course he never gave the real answer which is because uh because this is nonsense but no but uh uh, being a little a little harsh there but basically basically that was the thesis it it was it was it's exactly what you said it's it's an amazing simultaneity of both of these things at once it's a it's really an extrinsicism because Mm -hmm. it's it's an absolute foregone conclusion not just like that say Genesis, you know, is, is inspired, the inspired word of God, but that I absolutely know what it means to be the inspired word of God, 
Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I know all the entailments. And so I know even when I go to look at whatever the supposedly contrary evidence is of, of history, geology, or whatever, paleontology, I already know that unless it matches up to this, it's not true. And I, I just know that. So, so you have that extrinsicist mindset. But the, what the actual argument of the book is, look, the real problem with like you know Darwinian view of the world or whatever he was calling it was if you cannot believe that Genesis 1 – happened exactly as it was stated and of course details are right you know sort of covered over like what what do you mean like the seventh day which has no evening and morning you know but um no he you know he just means seven you know, he really means like seven 24-hour periods then you can't he actually there's a line that almost says it's verbatim i remember reading this as a 19 year old and i was like <laughs> i couldn't I didn't know what to do he said if you don't believe that that this happened exactly as it's stated then you you have no grounds to believe that jesus existed, that Jesus died, and certainly not that Jesus resurrected from the grave. And so your faith is in vain, you know, like Paul says. That was the argument. So the argument was, it was thoroughly a modern historicist form of argument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like Richard Dawkins would agree with that, right? Like, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it didn't happen that way. And so you can't trust it at all. The whole thing's a lie. Um, these are just these are just oscillating abstractions, and, and really what it is, and what, what I think Blondell is so useful in uh, diagnosing variously, he does this a lot, is is to say they, they share more in common than they think they do as they oppose themselves to one another. But what they share in common fundamentally is, they, is they've already presumed they know and they have a total mastery over what it would even mean to be the truth and to be divine truth and to be revelation in history. And they just think it basically more or less corresponds to their methodological strictures. Yeah. Like, oh, happy coincidence. The, the, the truth as a whole is exactly correspondent to my, my discipline's methodology. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Exactly. That's such a great fortuitous, you know, and it's like, okay, so, so, so let's think about the things you've, so the truth is, is what then? Uh, is it a fact? Okay. The historicist would say it's like a fact. Okay. But the externist would say it's just like a, a, a what? A formula, a proposition, an idea, a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is it? Is it a subject verb predicate form? Like what, what, nobody is saying it's a person. Nobody's thinking about the implications of, the, of what it would mean for it to be a person. And then no one was thinking of the, of the implications of what it would mean for the truth itself to be able to say, I am the truth rather than here's the truth about, you know, and, and stay a sort of a third person objective statement. No one's thinking about what it would mean for that to, to, for, for him, right. To incarnate, and then all the implications of how, how the process of trying to apprehend the incarnate truth in person, like what, like all of that stuff is so much more, right? Like you're getting at the whole, and that's, there's this one line, uh, if you don't mind me reading, oh, yeah, I don't want to like, I don't want to just read out loud all the time. I know, I, I know uh, that, that could, you know, at some point you just say, read the text people, but, uh, <laughs> but he, he says this, this is sort of near the end. I think it's in the third section of history and dogma. He says, Faithful action is the Ark of the Covenant where the confidences of God are found, the tabernacle where he perpetuates his presence and his teaching. If the essential truth of Catholicism is the incarnation of dogmatic ideas into historical facts, one must add reciprocally that the miracle of the Christian life is that from acts, at first perhaps difficult, obscure, and enforced, one rises to the light through the practical verification 
of speculative truths. So mm. <laughs> there's so much there. Yeah, I, I just like to give Maurice Bondell an amen at this point. Like we're a couple of <laughs> Protestant boys from the South, we've got to give this man an amen. Like, we got an amen, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, keep going. Yeah, no, no, that's like it's. But what he what he's saying there? He, he's tracing out in his sort of dense way, but but still very clear that look for one thing. This is the truth. Isn't just like you know. Uh, hey, here's an enlightened thing I just came up with. It's a really great thing. It's better than Pythagorean's theorem. It's the theorem of the whole world, or whatever. It's 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 it has to be incarnate because and it has and that has to be an action. It has to be an actual life which will resist reductionism to any abstraction, whatever direction. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. there's the kind of hermeneutical task that's immediately implicated in that, and that will include, for example rising from the the nitty-gritty messy details of history oh yeah for sure he's the last he's the last one does and and some people have critiqued him on this i think kind of wrongly he's the last one to sort of avoid the work of history i mean he himself isn't a historian but he's not recommending that at all what he is what he is recommending i think one way to put it is this It's it's a little bit anachronistic i'm using it's not exactly the terms he says but there's nothing wrong with abstractions there's what's wrong is dilating them to the whole as if what what he even says that at one point earlier in the text he says there's the abstraction like say as a methodology like you're a historian there are certain principles Mm -hmm. tools rules like you're, you're looking for certain patterns right that's fine like there's nothing wrong with that any more than there's anything wrong with paleontology or geology or whatever right it's that you need to know that that you can be the master of a domain and that doesn't mean your domain is the whole that's really that simple yeah in fact he's so big on this that he really thinks that this understanding that you are like a part of the whole is what gives you freedom right that he every discipline should mm-hmm. have its autonomy and should do its work brilliantly but it's only when the, the abstractions of that particular domain become the whole that it's that it goes aside. And this is very early when he wrote this book. This is nineteen oh four. Nineteen oh four. And I, I just want to say, I, I mentioned I used the term cyclist historiography before. I should say he's kind of addressing that kind of thing. But historiography in general has come a long way since nineteen oh four. And there's a lot of secularist um, historiographers or secular historiographers who would take a kind of hermeneutical approach and yeah. move beyond this like facts or facts kind mm-hmm. of thing. And the, the problem is, is that in our fields, I think, in historical theology and biblical studies, history of ancient Israel, within our guilds, because of this battle, because they've been so defined by the very battle he's putting his finger on, mm-hmm. they lag behind the hermeneutics on, on both sides. Uh, I, I encountered this at Chicago, where I had a wonderful time, great education. I could tell when we had debates with hermeneutics professors and theology professors in the divinity school and other places, this was very clear. We were still like, we got the facts, baby. You can do what you want with them. You know, the significance is for someone else to say, but we'll tell you what the facts are, right? That's still bad historiography, a historicist kind of perspective, not an extrinsicist, but still it was, we are the historical critics. We can tell you what the text says, Mm -hmm. and you can tell us what it might mean to you, but we don't really care because we're going to determine its meaning based on its factuality and its its history. I I think Blondell, uh, what he's doing here, uh, anticipates a a lot of work um, throughout the humanities Mm. 
um, that would agree with him. Yeah, I I think uh, everything you're saying is exactly right. That from his Christian perspective, he is saying, "I love what you said." that dogma incarnates in contingent history, Mm -hmm. and therefore we have to understand that and figure out how we're going to act in the determination of that. And I also love how you grounded this in uh, his theory of action. If if we imagine ourselves self-sufficient, we are missing the whole, and that's so true of also two errors. There, imagine it's a whole species of thought that's imagining its own abstraction is the action of the divine word incarnate in history. And Blondell, now he solves this, and I want to ask you about mm-hmm. this. He solves this like conundrum between history and dogma with resort to tradition that he, he says can bring these together. But he, he does not mean, in my reading, a tradition as a sort of intellectual reflection upon the development of textual arguments uh, or uh, abstractions or received dogmas or historical facts or anything like that, but rather something more like the person of God working through the uh persons of history in a greater spiritual sense that encompasses some of those things, but is also uh, no creed is sufficient to encompass what he means by tradition. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, in my reading, that's fair. And it's actually, in fact, one, I think, helpful touch point, especially for Catholics, is that there's a reason that Yves Congar, in the middle of the 20th century, in his book, The Meaning of Tradition, frequently reverts to Blondell. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when you know, and Congar is probably considered, I, I, I don't think it's, I mean, again, I'm not an ecclesiologist. This isn't my like expertise, but I don't think it's that outside, uh, you know, of, of the mainstream to, to basically consider that at least in the Catholic world on the question of tradition, its history, its sources, its character, and then speculative theology of tradition, Congar is probably, you know, you know, right up there at the very top. In the, in the whole past century. And he, he not only adverts to Blondell like, like explicitly on several occasions, but he, he picks up things like, like at one point he defines tradition as ongoing synthesis. Mm-hmm. But he also at the same time is expanding the very definition of tradition beyond intellectual ideas or theories or, or even theories of development. And he, he, he says they're practices the practices of the Christian yes. life in the church. He says at one point, he's got a really, and this is Congar again, by the way. He, he says, he says, uh, how does he put it? He says, um, the the statue of Mary in the garden or the sign of the cross given, you know, an old lady, uh, uh, you know, praying before candles and the, you know, is, is, is in some ways more the, the carrier of tradition, you know, than any treatise on this or that sort of theological. And, and, and again, you know, some people might be like, oh, okay, that's getting a little, he's a little romanticizing these like little quaint scenes of, you know, but, but I think his point, right, is that incarnation is exactly that. It doesn't, it, the incarnation isn't limited to the realm of ideas precisely because what is incarnated isn't just a what, it yeah. is a who, mm-hmm. and no who is reducible to an idea. Not even true ideas about them. That's the mm-hmm. crucial thing. Mm-hmm. We, we already know that just with each other. I mean, I can say a whole bunch of things about you, and I, you know, I can speak about my wife or people I know even very, very well. That doesn't ever exhaust who they are, and in fact, it has mm-hmm. the peculiar characteristic that that is knowing a person has the peculiar characteristic uh, that unless you've experienced the person directly, you you actually <laughs> you don't really know who they are. You might learn a lot about them, but even what you know about somebody prior to the experience of meeting them becomes transfigured in the in the very act of meeting them yes and so 
that that is getting a little bit off into you know but but i'm just i'm using that as a way of saying this sort of enriching the tradition as the process the on congar's term the ongoing synthesis or what what, what uh actually in the 19th century somebody like Yo, uh johann adam muller said tuming it ongoing yeah. incarnation Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the title of a book by uh, Michael Himes on on Muller and his uh, doctrine of development, which is in some ways I think a little more satisfactory than like Newman's. But I know some people might come at me, with, you know, uh, with sticks and stones and want to break my bones. No one, no, no one, would no, ever do that yeah, I don't. <laughs> but um, but I think what, but I think you know, and I'm not, you know, obviously there's criticisms on all sides. Nobody's got it completely right, and it's part of the point here. But I think what's important to see and, and this is what what I really love about Blondell here is he he sees I really do think that he sees that the content I'm going to put it this way first and maybe I'll try to the the content of Christology will ultimately need to be what provides the proper method to apprehend its own content. Now, it's not fideism. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean it's fideistically mm-hmm. and he doesn't either because he just said you need to do history, you need to do right. But I think one of the things we typically do uh, and when i say we I, I suppose i should just say i think it's common to do in the theology world is to almost almost imagine like god's act of creation and then salvation history and his interaction with the people of god and then tradition you know the positive faith handing on the tradition and so forth you know the formation of the canon every, everything you would associate with the unfolding of salvation history and tradition. It's like God, it's like we still sort of furtively or surreptitiously, secretly think God has like one go at it. Mm-hmm. And he can, he, he's sort of like limit, like he's going to do the best he can. He's, he's dealing with these bumbling idiots. He's finite, you know, <laughs> ignorant uh, actors, these free agents that these free radicals that who knows what they're going to do. And <laughs> I mean, he might know what you're depending on who you're talking, but he might know exactly what they're going to do, but it still provides this kind of ex- almost, almost extrinsic constraints to God's work or, you know, whatever. There, obviously, just not everybody thinks that. There's other people that would be like, no, predestination 100%. But nevertheless, the, but I still think that the picture is kind of like God works with what he's got, the best that he can do. And it's way better than anybody can imagine, sure. But, you know, we have to sort of accept the fragmentary picture that we have and just don't ask too many questions. And I really think Blondell's emphasis in this text, he, he keeps coming back to the whole. I, there's this one text, actually, that I wanted to, to read out loud. But yeah, he, he keeps coming back to the whole. Now, I have to say, before I read this, as one who and I might already be getting us off on the wrong foot here on this podcast, but um, I wasn't the first one as I've learned, uh, but this very much remi- reminds me of Hegel and the preface to the phenomenology yeah. of spirit, which, which apparently two or three other people said that to, even to him to about action, not about this text. Yeah. Oh, where is it at? He, um, I think pa- part of, I'll just try to remember and summarize. I, I think part of what he's trying to say is that if the truth can dis- if the whole truth, I mean the divine truth, I mean, God, if God yeah. can disclose and re- reveal himself to us, not just a fragment or a piece or something, but his entire self, which which anyone who says, I am the truth, right, it would seem to be a pretty clear uh, identity there, then only the whole will disclose the, the, the possibility of its own disclosure. Now, does not uh, now the, the other side of that hermeneutical sort of dilemma is that, well, but yeah, but we don't start with the whole. Of course, that's the point. But you do start with a kind of intuition of the whole, which I think his his philosophy of action is getting at. It's another way of of, of getting at the main thesis there. We intuit Mm -hmm. the whole, but we intuit 
our insufficiency given with the abstractions we work with the way we sort of divide up life itself which is always more determinate than any of our ideas or formulas about it Mm -hmm. we can he thinks with a proper philosophical analysis we can actually detect not just that we're insufficient but that the presence of the whole is partly revealing our insufficiency or our inadequacy for that whole's disclosure and yet it's also mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. propelling the process right and i think that's what he's bringing to that last part uh on tradition he's bringing that that, that like that's sort of <laughs> tradition sort of like catching all of that and uh and i don't think he's you know, there's different ways to read him and i've read different critiques but i mean i don't think he's just like smoke and mirrors here i think i think he really believes well how else would it be revealed yeah if it's not just an idea, if it's not just a statement, if it needs to be incarnate, it has to account for and encompass as a part of itself disclosure, almost almost ad hoc, but it's not ad, you know purely ad hoc. The free and sometimes erroneous and sometimes uh, uh, really erroneous actions, thoughts, formulations, articulations, and perfect expressions of the entirety of all of history and of God's yep. interaction with that. And yet it somehow it can retrospectively be disclosive or revelatory of God in the process of his entire self-disclosure. Like if that, it's either yep. that or just there is no self-disclosure of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. I don't know if that makes sense. It was a little bit rambling there. I think that's right. And it it connects. There's a through line here that we've been working on that you just came back to that I that I very much like of the intuition of the whole, the desire for sufficiency, which is where the error comes in, right? And and also where our insecurities lie. You know, this is um I don't want to be a part of a club that would have me as a member. <laughs> you know? Why? Because we, we we recognize we we want the whole, we want to be understanding truth to be in the realm of the ultimate in a way and the best thing, but we understand that that would just be judgment. There's always something more that that we lack. And so even when we are accepted, we can then like, now I'm going pure psychological, <laughs> but I like this because then what you're, what you're saying is the, the mirror image of this is actually what the incarnation is. And mm-hmm. from hearing you right. And then how the very process of the whole being revealed must look as, as a sort mm-hmm. of kenosis that we can act in love towards and with in that very canonic mm-hmm. response. Yeah, exactly. So that, it goes really well with his sort of sense of like nature and supernature and sort of action is always sort of transcendentally like it, it detects its own insufficiency, which is therefore an operation of itself. So it's not like it's an alien intrusion mm-hmm. into its own, the, the nature of reason trying to understand. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think that the only way you can be satisfied with abstractions, be they from the left or the right or a historicist versus an extrinsicist slash dogmatist is if you've already sort of secretly decided that the, you know the nature of the truth ahead of time. Like, you know the determinations of the content of the whole ahead of time. And then you just simply judge whether or not that's been revealed. Mm-hmm. Well, when I, when I, when I mm-hmm. survey the sort of facts of history, it doesn't really look like some unchanging, uncomplicated, simplistic narrative of unfolding and unfurling to its nice, uh, easy, steady, serene resolution. Therefore, there is none. Like, like, like this isn't, mm-hmm. nothing's revealed. 
because I know I know what it would yeah. be to be to, to for it to reveal it, himself or herself or itself or however you want to put it, God's self. On the other hand, the kind of extrinsicist view is is eerily similar. It's just the judgment is affirmative rather than negative. It's like, well, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it has been revealed, and it is all actually pretty uncomplicated. Why verify the details? This is the beginning, like, well, you know, because that, you know, <laughs> who needs to do that? We already we already know what it is. You know, it's like so so it's been revealed. We've received it, and now it's it's not that I want to like suggests that this is all there is to the discourse out there or whatever. But I really do think, I think especially in the, in the Catholic, I I say Anglophone Catholic world today, and maybe even more particularly in American sort of Catholicism, this dynamic really is still at play. And I just simply don't, I think these are just dead ends. So you're going to, you're going to get stuff like, well, you know, what I've heard one one scholar, I think, aptly call it uh, like magisterial fundamentalism, mm-hmm. where it's like, well, I mean, look, like I think sometimes the Catholics can sort of imagine that simply because there's a there's a greater quantity of authoritative text than there are for certain Protestant traditions, that somehow that means all the answers have been raised and resolved, which really, really, it kind of yes. means the opposite in a lot of cases. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. uh, well, I mean, you know. Um, if you do a pretty thorough study of Vatican one and what it says about the Pope in relation to the council, and then you look at the council of Constance as, as the really great historian Francis Oakley has done, for example, it's like, and even he says at the end of his studies, like, look, I mean, this isn't easy. Like, and, and, mm-hmm. and in some ways there isn't a resolution on the level of history. Like the facts are, they, I no, mean, they no. really are. And he gives, he goes through all these different attempts. He's like, look, this is why that doesn't work. And that, and, 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 and look at this, this is Catholic world, right? I'm talking about Vatican one and Constance. I mean, how much more cat Roman Catholic can you get? But, yeah. but part of the point, like you and I have discovered talking to each other over the years, the last few years is like, this is exactly the same thing I saw play out with scripture and inerrancy. It's, it, it's, it's an extrinsicist approach to magisterial teaching as well as to scripture that is a problem. Yeah, and, and actually it's out of our love for both of those that we think this is it's it's worth warning about. Absolutely. This is not a, a like a sophistry no, it, kind it, of no, thing. No, it's this and that, that was the point of earlier bringing up like like I've seen people walk away from like look scripture is not inspired because what you told me it meant when you said it was inspired is objectively wrong. <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't square the details you, you, it, and, and it's and it's obvious and and that's look i i am on the side that says one of the things that it means to be modern whatever else it means it does mean a kind of particular like we've been sensitized to to look for ideological distortion and spinning everywhere <laughs> i mean you could call it a hermeneutics of suspicion you can call it whatever you want you could also maybe just call it having to grow up and 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 you don't just say well you know like if my dad to this day i mean he tries to do it i mean the the poor old guy but uh you know if he if he gives me a bit of advice and and i say well i don't i don't know i'm not really sure why should i do that and he says like well because i told you so um you know look i'm i'm dumb and i'm recalcitrant and i need to be punished and what but I'm also 30, almost 37, like that's, and I got four kids. Like, so that's not going to really work. And, and I think, and I've seen that a lot, a lot of uh, uh, scholars that I think are really good and careful historians of the church and of the magisterium. A lot of them are, the heart behind it is I don't want to set people up 
to run aground as soon as they start asking questions and you know lift, lifting up rocks and saying, "Well, what's under here?" Yeah, um, and so it's 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 exactly the opposite, and I and I think that's clear in Blondell too, right? I mean, his whole thing Absolutely. is like I was going to say that same thing. Yeah, this is a man who like both went to a uh, to the university uh, in Paris, did straight up philosophy, you know. Mm-hmm. And then came back to the theological questions, refusing to, as a devout Catholic, you know, refusing to just dismiss the philosophical questions or method of his time based on Catholic dogma, right? Yes. And, yes. and, and nor, and refusing to let those philosophical ends like make him cynical or divided, you know, like here's where I go to church and here's where I go to school about Catholicism. He said, I have to bring these together. This is a personal thing for him, just as it was for for us. And he was very, uh, this, this emphasis on action, his practice of Catholicism was consistent and devout and very important to him. And he even uh, resisted the reprinting of this, this amazing work, Laction, uh, his dissertation, because he didn't want to get censored by the anti-modernist church of that time, Mm -hmm. Uh, not because he wanted to lose some sort of influence, but because he didn't want to be in that kind of relationship with, with the church that he loved. So that, that like, I think he, he's bringing those two things together. Completely agree. Yeah. He says that there's this little, there's this line I really resonated with. uh, This is from his journals. So it's fairly early 1894. He puts it this way, he says, In the very security of faith, therefore, I feel doubts. The anxiety of the search, the difficulties which the affirmation of Christianity involves. And then this part really got me. I feel the full force of modern prejudices and the dreams of a new humanity in my very bones. It's this. It's 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 there is there is such a thing, and I know people are so cynical nowadays on any side that they seemingly can't believe this. But I'm going to say it because I think it's sort of the spirit with which, at least, I'm approaching this, and I think you as well. There is a sense in which there are times, I should say, when resisting easy answers and asking the the harder questions is itself a sign of the deepest faith mm-hmm. and fidelity. It's to me, it's the Job kind of principle. Like Job wouldn't lie for God mm-hmm. and he would protest against him and he would shut up when he's, when he shut up. But then also God would say at the end of Job, Job alone spoke truly of me. Yeah, And mm-hmm. most of the time Job is just complaining and protesting. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. and and it, and it's the right. It's the uh, it's the great theologians, his friends, that are giving all these wonderful exposit- expositions of the rationale for why God can can uh, can do this to Job. They're the ones that are lying for God. To use George McDonald's phrase, he says, "Lying for God could go no further." And and I think that's Blondell for me is that he is fundamentally he is so trustworthy of the wholeness of Catholicism. He's so trustworthy, almost like a child, right? That that surely the truth which is yet unfolding is so much richer and greater. You know, like Ephesians, you know, three says he's who is who is able to do more than we can ever ask or conceive of. To him be the glory in the church and in, and in Christ Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of more than we can ever ask, even think to question, mm-hmm. and more than we can conceive of of the word. There's no in. The more we yeah. can even conceptualize, 
that God is the one you believe in. And sometimes it's your belief in that particular, that determinate God who is revealed in Christ. That is the very generator of your of a sort of skepticism. It might seem like a modernism, you might say. It might, or you might just call it, with Friedrich von Hugel, uh, an adult faith is what it is, like grown-ups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I just want to read one other thing. I, I said I wouldn't read a bunch. Of, this will be the last one I read. This is actually from the letter of apologetics two years later, 1896, although it's eight years prior to history and dogma. And he says this, I hate the infatuation of people who are tough-minded with the tough-minded, who see too clearly to see properly. Mm. Right there, that's that's abstraction. Yeah, That's absolutizing abstraction. Oh, you think you know what history is, and all you need to do is recount the facts. So you know what a fact is, and you know there's really nothing more to ask. Okay, so that's an abstraction. Oh, oh, you think you know what dogma is and how it relates to history, and it's more or less extrinsic, so you don't need to do history. Right. So you see so clearly, though, that you don't see properly because you're distorting, reducing uh, that which is more determinate than your abstractions, namely life itself, reality, action, and ultimately the one and only act, which is God. Mm-hmm. So you see, t- they, they see too clearly to see properly, they're, and they're proud of their myopic certainty. They're foolishly indignant at the folly or the intellectual perversity of unbelievers and who, with the bumptiousness of a faith which is bound up with reasons of a too human kind, have neither due respect for souls who are still seeking the light nor a sense of the mysterious profundities of our destiny. So I like that right there because on, because sometimes I do meet some people that are like you might say they're the they're the ones that are uh, the champions of winsomeness. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or they're or the or they're the sort of uh, well look we're not neo-Thomists. Uh, we're not like retrograde. Like we also read Rilke, you know, and we <laughs> and we read poetry and we know about science. Mm-hmm. But this but the disposition is still like so we can sort of accommodate and be patient with those still seeking the light because they're still catching up. They're like little, they're like younger siblings. Right. And so we can be, but that's, that kind of has its own condescension. And this is why I think it's important that Bondell added the second part to that. So they don't, they have neither due respect for souls who are still seeking the light. So that is still there, nor a sense of the mysterious profundities of our destiny. In other words, they don't even understand the profundity of their own faith, which discloses our destiny. Right. Mm -hmm. Once again, it's it might actually be that the incarnation is so resistant to what we would have thought it it would have been that it becomes the generator of our of of the very lines of questions that we ask and raise and Mm -hmm. objections Mm -hmm. that we might Mm -hmm. raise and the in the easy answers that we resist right and i think that's a crucial thing so you have an Mm -hmm. external Mm -hmm. dimension but also an internal dimension which i should just throw in there you know vatican ii pretty much says in Reda de Grazio Unitatis, it says that it stands to reason, I mean, it's in the context of ecumenism, it says it stands to reason that, that the mysteries, right, have been better understood by one side than the other, different aspects of the mystery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, De Verbum 8 says, right, similarly, where oh, the church always progresses until it comes to the fullness, and it does so, this is like a Blondelian moment, does so not first through whatever the Pope says today, or even whatever the the magisterium has promulgated in this or that level of document. But the first thing it lists is through the study and contemplation of believers. Yes. 
And then it says through their experience of the profound, something like the profundity or the, or the mysteriousness of ex, like experiential. And then it says the magisterium. So of course we're, so no, no, you're, when we're Catholic, we're not against the magisterium, but you cannot out of a sort of magisterial fundamentalism, put a cap on mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or sort of think that there that it's more or less all unproblematic how it is that god incarnates and therefore self reveals in and through history and in through a whole bunch of fallible events right or fallible agents and events and freedom and more or less understanding and imperfect articulations and all the rest of it and then I just have to add this little line at the very end of that paragraph I read. Um, Blondell says, it's undesirable that our apologists should be those who are most in need of conversion to the Christian spirit today. <laughs> that is undesirable, actually. It's undesirable. I like that. That is undesirable. <laughs> it's like, that's rather unfortunate that uh, the most outspoken Christians are the ones who understand Christianity least. Yeah, uh, that is uh, that's quite good. And you know, this was like, uh, Blondell had a massive influence on on some theologians uh, that have sometimes become the favorite theologians of folks who are wanting a bottom line uh, crushing hermeneutic. And not everyone who likes them is this way, but uh, Joseph Ratzinger in Introduction to Christianity, he I was shocked because he has this well-earned from later texts, but sometimes overplayed by conservative American Catholics um, reputation for being the conservative pope, right? And when I went and read Introduction to Christianity, I was shocked at his friendliness towards atheism in the first chapter, where he's like Kierkegaard's clown at the at the, uh, the burning city is is grasping the truth of existence more than Christians who are longing for medieval Catholicism to still be at play. And also, he goes into the the Nicene Creed and says, in this introduction to the Nicene Creed. You know, it's kind of astonishing that something that acquired such brutal historical actions and violence could be the bearer of Christian tradition. In its historical contingency, obviously it was uh, problematic is his basic statement there. But let's go ahead and explore its truths and and see what we can learn and and how they advance Christianity today. So, in Ratzinger, who's, you know, influential for Fides et Ratio, which you mentioned, Mm -hmm. at this juncture, uh, something like the spirit of Blondel, who he read, I think, and enjoyed, and of course, von Balthasar did too, and some of these, um, Blondel is sometimes called the philosopher of Vatican II. At that juncture, right, as they themselves are battling neo-scholasticism, they're they're also seeing this very thing that um, they sometimes Ratzinger in particular is updated introduction to Christian uh, the introduction to Christian. you you hear him slipping into that more like conservative vernacular of where he starts to say, oh my gosh, look at all the bad things that modernity has brought. Uh, about and and the death of god has led to devastation right and that's like 30 years later so it's an interesting trajectory Hmm. point being as the church has gone in and out on some of this discourse blundell and blundell's kinds of ideas have been very in vogue and then very um forgotten i think sometimes yeah i i agree and it's and I think that's yeah. So that that's that's the kind of I, I think spirit with which we want to we want to do the whole podcast. That's that's how we kind of already have is the sort of common ground that you and I are, are sort of the shared sentiment that we've discovered just in our own friendship. 
And it's, um, I think it's much needed today. You know, it's like, look, I can, I'll read certain outlets that you would call conservative uh, Catholic uh, commentary or something like that or somewhere near that. And there's a whole lot of, you know, look at these people on the other side that don't care about theology. They reduce everything to politics. All they're talking about is sociology of religion. Nobody's doing metaphysics. And 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 isn't this just the sign of kind of the decadence of modernity and the secularization and the disenchantment of the world? And and it's all so terrible. And, and, and look, some there's some truth to that. I can attest to that firsthand. Oh, yeah. uh, and I'm not satisfied with don't do theology either. But I think I think in the uh, what makes Blondell a sort of figure that's helpful helpfully rounds out the picture is that he simultaneously has the sense, and I think the people that he influenced that you're alluding to also had the sense of like, yeah, but it's not just that um, it's not just that we feel like we need to progress or we need to correct or reverse or reimagine or reinterpret certain uh, time you know sort of cherished old uh, traditional ideas or formulas. Um, that every time we do that, it's it's because of some kind of um, reductionism and capitulation to the secular or the modern. Sometimes it's yeah. actually <laughs> it's actually a result of you know the mystery of Christ Himself. Yes, um, you know, mm-hmm. like it was for most of history, in fact, and, and, and the very debates that Ratzinger was mentioning there with Nicaea all the way through, you know, for seven hundred years and beyond. And and so there's there's a kind of lack of self-awareness that, you know, the theology you so cherish is sometimes a generator of its own dissatisfaction, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, of its mm -hmm. own need to go beyond. Now, that's on one side, but then I can read pieces that are sort of traditionally progressive or liberal Catholic, Mm -hmm. and you do kind of get this like, well, you know, that's all old stuff, and besides, aren't they sort of totally this or that way? Like, we know better now because we're not so fill in the blank, right? And there's a kind of, we're going to cite a bunch of sociology and statistics, and then, ah, uh, shoot, at the end, we got to say something theological, I'm going to throw in this verse, you know, or maybe <laughs> this biblical with a yeah, moral, something yeah. theology, you know. <laughs> and so that definitely, that definitely doesn't occur, and that's also dissatisfying. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, that's, that's the point, is that the kind of holistic picture, which is uh, itself a result of conceiving of action as incarnation revelation as incarnation tradition as ongoing synthesis or or, rev- or revelation and therefore incarnation which certainly yes includes actually in fact it necessitates radical self-criticism at, at points and judgment and re-envision yeah. i mean that's just that's not only just a historical fact but it's, i think it's a it's a theological mandate but that that will find both sides right both types of seemingly opposed abstractions, it will find them dissatisfying. And I think that's yeah. what, maybe that's the way to put, that's the way to put like sort of more theoretical framework to what you and I first discovered in our conversations as a kind of disenchantment or fallout that mm-hmm. initially, at least for me, was kind, of, was kind of gut level. Like I couldn't quite always articulate why. And I thought for a while it was just, you know, I, I guess I just, boy, ridiculous expectations. Maybe I was just so naive. I don't, I don't know. And then I got into this into this world, and and I'm just sort of really dissatisfied, like, oh, man. I would, But actually, I, it started to dawn on me, and then talking with you, and I feel like we kind of converged around the same point at the same time. Like, it's not that it's just less good than I thought or sort of less rich and stimulating intellectually and spiritually or whatever, you know, than I, than I had anticipated. But it's actually that I, I don't think it's really the way Catholicism, like, I don't think that's the full promise of it. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I do find both sides dissatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. They both are, yeah. they're both thin gruel. And, and Catholicism is not thin gruel. And there's a lot of thin gruel masquerading as the feast of Catholicism. And it's just, we reject the thin gruel. That's it. Yeah. That's it's, it's a podcast of two grumpy men rejecting <laughs> thin gruel. And I hope also talking about some other interesting things along the way. Um, but yeah, no, no thin gruel. Sorry. No, uh, we can't do it. And yeah. I think that's, that, that'll be, that's another dynamic I want to highlight a little bit with, with you. What I liked, you and I have similar backgrounds biographically. We've already mentioned, but you, you are in the world. I mean, you, you Chicago guy, you're doing old your biblical studies, Old Testament to Hebrew scripture. And I think that's another part we'll explore as we, as we sort of go on, yeah. right? Is like, you're a biblical studies guy, and that's a very well-defined discipline. And I'm over here, and I'm in historical theology, like the devil and systematic theology. And those are well-defined disciplines. And, you know, with, with exceptions, with notable exceptions, I just think those are two silos often. They kind of go like disciplinary. They're sort of separate off. I mean, literally, yes. right? AR is one thing. And SBL is the other, but they're sort of there at the same time. Um, like that to me is a kind of an image of like, that's often how we are even like in our intellectual approaches, like even unwittingly, yeah. it's like, oh, we're just yeah. sort of there in the same space. We're juxtaposed, but we're not going to really talk to each other or like learn from each that's other. That's right. Yeah. So like we want to do that as well. And I think in the Catholic world, and you'll be able to speak more to this than, than I will, but I feel like it's particularly needed, right? Yeah. In the biblical studies, yes, uh, I think that's true. I think there's a, a really interesting history there that, that illustrates both sides of this Londelian coin. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I come from this academic Bible perspective where uh, to hear myself referred to as a theologian after years at Chicago was shocking because that's just not what I was in the Oriental Institute in the Divinity School. But like to talk about theology in the classroom would have been like talking about, you know, your sex life or something. It was just like, not like you, you don't bring that up in the classroom because we were doing history and, and there, and there's a lot of good to that. I really enjoyed that. And I still do. Uh, but within Catholicism, yeah, there is a, uh, the CBA, which I love the Catholic Bucal association are part of great organization and the people in the pews and the uh, people reading scripture studies and doing Bible studies at, at their churches they are further apart now, those two realities. Catholic Bible scholarship, the, schol the Bible scholars who are actually helping the bishops or you know, providing translations of the NABRE to the bishops, you know, uh, and the people doing Bible studies uh, from Scott Hahn at church, they're, they're, they couldn't be, they're, they're much further apart than they were post-Vatican II uh, up until about year 2000. So, yeah, we want to talk about that history and why that is, among other things on this podcast. But, yeah, that'll be one segment. Yeah, and I think that'll – I think another thing we, we've talked about wanting to do as well will be, you know, kind of in that spirit of, like, well, let's, like, face everything. Let's consider – like, I, I would love, like, with you, I would like to go and sometimes read classics in your field. Like it's, yeah. it's outside of my thing, but this is something we ought to be doing as much as we can. Like, you know, and so like, let's read a little Wellhausen or whatever, you know, let's, yeah. let's read these people, you know, I'll learn from you. I'll ask questions from you. And then I'll kind of bring you know, my, my perspective and then vice versa. And, and then we'll branch out and every once in a while we'll have guests on and stuff. So um, it's just kind of, we want to inhabit a space and sort of 
just do that together. We want to use this podcast as an excuse to to keep us a, a pace, and then hopefully other yes. people will maybe uh, you know uh, get get something out of it as well and, and, and delight in it perhaps. Because to be honest, at least in my perspective, and it could be myopic, I I don't see a lot of that. I, I often see either sort of this like, well, we're just going to do history because all that dogma stuff is ideological and it's fundamentalist or whatever. And so the, let's just be kind of like the, the destroyers, the bearer of bad news all the time and then leave you mm-hmm. there. Or it's, or it is the, or it's the other side, which is just functionally nowadays. I don't think it always was. And Blondell would have, would have wanted a, a more nuanced understanding of this, or it's just a poly, it's internet apologetics. And so, we want to inhabit a space that's neither of those. Neither apologetics nor like a gotcha. This is what Bible scholars tend to do is like, what was to be the well actually in the room? Like, well, actually, you know, you can't say that. <laughs> if, if you hadn't said something just incredibly stupid, then maybe you would be right. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Which, uh, which I've been guilty of, of, of forgetting the larger point and wanting to say, well, you know, but the Hebrew here, you know, like, <laughs> but the Hebrew here, but the Hebrew here, has anybody seen Hebrew? <laughs> yeah so this should be fun uh i'm really looking forward to it and uh, yeah so we'll, we'll we talk to each other we'll bring some people on and uh fun talking about history and dogma both, both. With- it's not or it's and and history and the dogma that's who we are <laughs> that's right that's right we won't back off we won't back down <laughs> you know i was talking about the cba is like a counter principle to the church the people in the pews which is not true because a lot of people in CBA are in the pews, but but you, I, I had a very beautiful moment where I was talking about uh, they workshop my paper this past year mm. at CBA uh, nice. last week, so I was going through this argument about punishment and holiness and how ancient Israelites in this particular passage of scripture were imagining God's holiness and what the entanglements would that be of that would be for my argument, and I was thinking purely <laughs> anthropological terms, just like. How would this uh, solve the anthropological debate about history versus the sacred? Whether we imagine God's holiness as intrinsic um, and automatic, God is the source of holiness, or uh, whether Israel thought of being able to uh, somehow add or subtract from God's holiness based on how they acted Mm -hmm. towards him. So we're talking about this in anthropological terms. And then one of the the, the conveners uh, said, "Well, wouldn't this matter, you know, for people who believe in God, you know, and His intrinsic attributes and the truth of His like?" Uh, and I was like, "You know, absolutely. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> thank you for stopping me in this like uh, this purely academic intellectual exercise that I was doing and asking me the the, the dogmatic question, right. you know, which doesn't." Which, in my particular uh, branch of uh, theological studies or biblical studies, is not often asked, you know, except in the classroom, students are asking it all the time, but in the academy, it's not often asked. And so I loved it when this guy was like, but but doesn't this matter to how we think about God? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes that is exactly But then, that is. Now, don't you think, though, that like, I'm not saying that, I, I don't think it's a conscious thing, but don't you think that part of, don't you think it's just easier not to ask that question? 
<laughs> yes. And of like, course. That, like sometimes that just is part of the reason why like we we don't do that or people like basically make entire the whole project uh, like a studied avoidance of that on one side or the other again on one side or the other where it's like it's like look if I can obviously if you're just like an apologist and you're sort of like oh well you know this is a uh, this is all pretty clear let's just try to hammer the facts in to make it make it kind of fit that's one thing but also if you just do history and you're never kind of asked for a greater significance or if all your conclusion always just like yeah so like the scriptures are just or, or <laughs> the history of the church or the magisterial document whatever it is that you're considering it's just you know it's basically like a mirror we're all a mess and we can learn about how we're a mess it's like look i don't need to read conflicting like literally conflicting documents to know that i'm a mess yeah, that's pretty so, clear like, already. That's not a really good or big picture. So it's just, I feel like, don't don't you think, like, part of the whole thing is, like, what, what, what Blondell is getting at history and dogma is that this is really difficult stuff to think through. Yeah. And so. And it's the real, it's a big test. It's a huge test because you're, I mean, look at what he's, like, he's immediately into god revelation the relation of nature and supernature and then how that like interweaves in history like and then hermeneutics and what's that mean for us moving from the ground up you know and this transcendental orientation like yeah this is like really this is tough stuff and i think for so many of us and again i've been guilty of this as well instead of just saying no i'm not going to uh ask the question because it's just so hard and I'm, I can't really deal with it. It's like, I want to come up with the reason why it shouldn't be asked. And it's actually not a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or just shrug, you know, this is the common Bible scholar thing. Like, uh, uh I don't know. That's above my right, pay, grade, above the pay grade, which is a way of saying like, this is a silly question actually, yeah. but like, but it's an avoidant, it's an avoidant way of saying that. Like it's saying, because uh, I've seen this too uh, many times, including last week. Um, it's saying uh, the questions of the divine aren't solvable or treatable with the methods of history. Right. And um, I think they're not reducible to the methods of history, but um, but they are certainly, uh, we understand the divine as we understand history. And that's an incredible truth of the incarnation. And as Christians, if we want to affirm that God became flesh, but want to hold history and theology with a chasm between them, we have undone the revelation, uh, the right. incarnation. Yeah. We are, we are not letting the actual central content of our faith influence the way we think about uh, our own theological discipline. Yeah, part of that transcendental sort of like actions always more significant than what you immediately intend type thing is that you were, it's fine to have methodological strictures. And it's almost like, it's almost a uh, house. Would you do it? Like there's no other way to do it. But the thing is, you're always interpreting the nature of those strictures. Yeah. And that's the kind mm -hmm. of, like, that's the unavoidable sort of hermeneutical point. I once heard, so like almost the exact opposite of what you just said, right. Was, was sort of like, which is, which, but not, not a contradiction. It's just, it's just the other side. Like you were saying rightly that if we, if the, if the content of our faith is the incarnation was, I heard once I heard uh, N.T. Wright give a talk about basically why yeah. uh, that he thinks that history has to be the foundation and that you have to do all of history correctly. Like in the new Testament, like biblical studies, then you do early church history and you have to demonstrate how it's like a clear line.
Yeah. It's like a foundationalist thing. Like you, like, and that's the method. That's how history and dogma are related is that history is the foundation and dogma. You, you have to work up to it. And so it becomes like an apologetical task to do that. But he makes it, he made yeah. this remark that I thought was really odd where he said, otherwise your method is docetous. I get the point. Mm-hmm. And even Blondell makes a similar point, but his point isn't exactly right. And this is why it's important. Because look, <laughs> you can fully affirm uh, the reality of the incarnation, but still be the disciples in Luke chapter 24, sitting across the table, not recognizing who this guy is. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. So this is where the hermeneutic mm-hmm. turns back, the hermeneutical sort of circle comes in. And you say, yeah, you, of course, you, you can start there. You could start elsewhere, but you need to go through. But then you also have to go back. And that's the dynamic. It's a simultaneity, a dual sort of direction right and a, a, a history and dogma it's both at the same time yeah. there is no simple sequence here yes i completely agree because i i that method of into rights is i i find it wrong because like the, it is it does in its own way it's a more sophisticated version of something like inerrancy right. where you're like you're saying that belief in the Lagos made flesh is an inevitable result of just being a good historian. <laughs> and I think that's not, tr- not true. And in what's that way. important no. is it's not yeah. only wrong. Like it's not only very problematic historically, it is problematic mm. Christologically. Yes, yes, yes. It's yes, do- yes in yes. other words, mm-hmm. dogmatically problem- problematic too. And it's kind of amazing that a, a kind of a, a fairly prevalent and, and I would admit a, a, an initially intuitive kind of impulse actually ends up being pro- problematic from both directions at once. Yeah. I love that. And that that's kind of an, that's just a nice little example. I think of like the kind of, I think the kind of vistas that are opened up, if you follow, it's not just Blondell who did that, but that kind of thinking, he's an, exe- he's an exemplar yeah. of that. Uh, and, and you yeah, and I, yeah. you and I strive to do that because I think in that way, if I can, you know, put it this way i think that's kind of where we've settled or where we're putting our we're hedging our bets here like that is what it actually that's what it means to be catholic yeah yes yes yes, yes. at least intellectually speaking right so well i'm looking forward to it jordan thanks for doing this with me and uh i'm looking forward to it too man it's gonna be great charles it's gonna be fun we're gonna learn a lot i'm gonna learn a lot i know that good well until next time